When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. There weren't too many questions this week, so instead of recording on Thursdays like I usually do, I decided to wait till now, Friday morning, to record them. And at least one other question did come in, but I wanted to ask you all, in times like this where there aren't too many questions, would you think it was fun if I just did it live and then took questions from the chat to fill the rest of it? Kind of like I did on the 200th, but maybe just not as long? Uh, Or do I just keep it short because sometimes a short podcast is easier to listen to. Basically, these Q&As are a thank you to everybody who supports me, so I just want to do whatever it is that all the supporters want me to do for these. So please let me know, but let's jump in and see what we got this week. First up, over on Floatplane, the importer purchased a PS3 Slim this year and forgot how hot these things got, so they want to try to improve the airflow. They thought of two solutions, buy one of those add-on fans to snap into the back of the PS3, or get a PS3 Slim replacement shell, make a hole on top in order to help the air out faster. While solution one's clearly easier, they've heard negative things regarding add-on fans. What's my opinion on them, and which option do I think that Uh, I should recommend. So airflow is very tricky. Thermal dissipation is tricky. That was one thing that in my previous job I stumbled across. I didn't go to school for that, but I just got really lucky putting, putting all the pieces together. And I was able to design some pretty interesting cooling solutions for, you know, late 2000s era processors that ran a lot hotter than the current low powered, low temperature stuff. And one of the things that I definitely learned without a doubt is adding more fans doesn't always equal cooler. Sometimes it could be counterproductive. Now, I'm not speaking specifically to this PS3 solution. Maybe somebody put a ton of time and research into their add-on fan, or maybe a company just built an interesting case, slapped a fan on it, and said, cool down your PS3 more. You never really know unless you do a very deep dive test and you add thermal probes. So, My gut says that I don't normally trust that add-on stuff unless somebody reviewed it who truly knows what they're doing. Um, And, you know, it's not hard to do one of these, one of those types of reviews. It's just incredibly time-consuming. You got to disassemble everything. You got to mount thermal probes with Kapton tape. You got to make sure the probes and the thermal wires aren't causing some, you know, more heat because it's restricting airflow. It's it's very, very time-consuming. I spent like a month of my life doing that. I built my own thermal chamber. Everybody laughed at me. It was basically a giant box that I duct-taped the table. I did all of my testing and then I flew out to Taiwan and everybody was kind of like, yeah, look at this idiot. He's, you know, his box tests are never going to work. And they matched within one degree of what, you know, the big million dollar thermal test lab with their, with their special sensors and everything had. So I definitely have some experience there. Now, 
Your other option is intriguing. Cut out a hole and, you know, try to get air out that way. I've always wondered why no one offered bigger PlayStation and even Xbox cases where you take the guts out, you mount it in a bigger case with bigger fans and a bigger heat sink. I never understood why anybody did that when they spent the money investing in tooling for other stuff, fans for other stuff. I think that would be the perfect solution. But that's not quite what you're talking about, and that could be the same in the same vein as uh, adding another fan. Cutting a hole in the wrong spot could actually be detrimental, because if airflow is very specifically routed, if you cut a hole and uh, and let hot air out there, sure, that spot will be cooler, but if the air was meant to flow through there and out the back, everything past that hole could potentially get hotter. So... I don't mean to shoot down all your solutions. I just, this is, uh, you know, you've touched upon a subject I have an insane amount of hours into. So I just, I know what could go wrong in these scenarios. So my suggestion would be if you have the time to get some thermal probes and, or, or if you have any software, I think, I think there's software for uh, soft modded PlayStations that show you, you know, all of the temperature specs in there. You could certainly try either one of those and see what happens. Um, and, you know, if it works, it works. Great. But I would love to see somebody think of a bigger picture solution for this, because I guarantee you that, you know, old NES, Genesis, Super Nintendos are going to last longer than PlayStation 3 and Xbox because of heat and moving parts, complexity of components. So while it would have been nice to have it up until now, even if now somebody jumps on board and makes a cool case, I think it would be really worth it. Heck, even if they repurposed a PC case or something, whatever, I think that would be the the perfect heat solution. Wouldn't look nearly as cool as an original PlayStation 3 or a Slim, but... So, yeah, if you want to try any of those out, I would start with an add-on fan, but make sure you're doing temperature tests before and after. Like, leave it on in a track mode screen or something and let that run for... You know, on a game that definitely uses CPU usage, CPU and GPU and then check your temperature, and then put on the add-on fan afterwards and see if the temperature goes up or down after you know another hour's worth of use. I would suggest that first just because it's plug-and-play, basically. Um, but I think in order to really make a difference without potentially hurting anything else, you're going to have to do a lot more testing. So sorry this wasn't the easy answer that uh, that you probably hoped for, but I'd rather be honest and bore you to death than tell you, yeah, throw a fan on there, you'll be fine, and have you cause damage or something. These weekly Q&As are sponsored by everybody who supports on services like Patreon, Floatplane, and Ko-fi, but if you wanted to support without those services, I'd like to show you how. Just go to RetroRGB.com and click on Support Us, and then scroll down to the general affiliate links. You could basically go to eBay or Amazon and just click on that link and buy whatever you are going to buy for the exact same price, but we get a few pennies on the dollar. What I like to do to be sure is to copy the tag, so the question mark tag equals afterwards, and then you could go in and whatever that you buy with this will be the same price as before. However, when you check out, it'll automatically know that it came from RetroRGB and we'll get a few pennies on that. The other thing I like to do to be sure is when I go to my cart, I highlight the question mark and everything after it, and I paste in that code once more just to make sure Amazon knows where this all came from, and then I check out. But it really is that easy on Amazon or eBay. You could buy exactly what you were going to buy anyway, but you get to support this channel and help keep it all going. So thank you very much for your support, 
and let's get back to it. Now over on Patreon, we have a couple of questions here, but the first one from Clark was in the wrong spot and I almost missed it. So not picking on you, Clark, but I just wanted to remind everybody, make sure to put whatever question you have under the newest Q&A post. Anywhere else, it's probably going to get missed. And if I eventually find it later, it might get cleared out or deleted. But those are the only times I ever delete posts. I never delete anybody's question unless it's something like this. So not picking on you, Clark. I just wanted to remind everybody else. But since I caught it, let's jump in. Clark says their game room is starting to make progress. And they're looking at surround sound, but finding it all a bit confusing. They'll also be watching DVDs and Blu-rays, too. The most advanced consoles they have are a PS3 and a Wii U. And they'll also be using an original Xbox with HD RetroVision Wii component cables and optical audio out via the Consoles for You adapter. The component cables will be going into a retro tank, so out via HDMI. Same with the PS2, through the retro tank, but would have the, the SPDIF output on that. So Clark's question is, do most soundbars or receivers have the ability to select the optical audio instead of the HDMI audio? They just can't seem to work this out definitively, and they've really looked. Do they even need to worry about this connection, or will the two audio leads on their component cable from these consoles carry the sound channel information? So there's a couple of questions there, and I want to address all of them. First with the easiest. In the case of those more modern consoles, you're not going to have a 5.1 sound go through left and right audio. You will get stereo audio, of course, through the same HDMI connection, but not surround. And in fact, any of those older ones like uh, Star Fox on SNES, it's really other cha- just two other channels, I believe, embedded in those signals, and you just have to have a receiver that decodes it. But that's not the way it works with 5.1 audio. But good question. As far as receivers go, you should be able to select the output so uh, or the audio input. So here's a scenario. Let's say you have a Sega Genesis connected to that same retro tank, and everything's just going through HDMI coming through your speakers. But then you want to switch over to your PlayStation 3, which you're going to have you know, maybe component video going into the uh, the RetroTINK 5X. Same with the Wii U, the PlayStation 2, the Xbox, whatever scenario is. You have the more modern console going into the RetroTINK 5X and the optical audio going into your receiver. You should be able to just hit the menu button on the receiver, uh, like the on-screen menu, go in and just say HDMI 1 uses optical audio 1. Now, if you don't have any older consoles, if you only have more modern consoles, I would actually say you should get an optical audio switch. So all of them go through there. There was one on Tindy. There's that cheap one on Amazon that allows for four in. So depending on what kind of, uh, of connections they are, that might work. So then you could actually just always set your HDMI that your RetroTINK's connected to, to that optical audio out in, in, sorry. Uh, or you could just do it on the fly whenever you need it. But as long as wherever your receiver is connected to has that option to just plug into your TV, then that shouldn't be a problem. It would only be a problem if your receiver was like some of mine in the past where I didn't use the HDMI outs at all because I didn't need them. So getting in the on-screen menu was a giant pain. But it doesn't sound like your setup. So that should be fine. Now, you would want to double check in the manuals of these, but I just, I would have a really hard time believing that they don't have that option. Soundbars, on the other hand, 
I have no clue, and I've never liked a soundbar. And I know there's people here that own soundbars that are going to get enraged in the comments and defend their purchase because they bought it and they love it. But in all of my experience, and I used to go to trade shows for home automation, so CDS, CES, all that stuff. I heard the first soundbars. I've, I've been in this since soundbars were released. And for the price, I've almost never seen one that compares to, in any way to having any other option unless you absolutely don't have any space whatsoever. So even in my tiny little New York apartment, the first one that I moved into, I figured a sound bar was the best bet. And I ended up giving it to a friend because I got two speakers for free on a junk pile and some old RCA amp somebody gave me that they paid five bucks for at Goodwill. And just the separation of the two bookshelf speakers sounded infinitely better than the sound bar. And, you know, of course, if you go up in price, there's some very expensive, well over $1,000 soundbars that are excellent, that do really good fake surround, but for the price, an actual surround sound stereo is going to sound so much better. So I would strongly recommend not getting a soundbar unless you absolutely do not have the room for anything else. I would look into, you know, and I would kind of decide a budget and how into audio you are. Because that's the other thing, which I'll get into in another video at some point. But that base model, $200 dead-in receiver. It's kind of like TVs and that I always say get the cheapest or go and get like a really good OLED or something like that. Because anything in the middle, you're very oftentimes paying for features that you may or may not need, but you're still using a subpar panel. And while I'm generalizing here, it is the same-ish with audio. You get the base model Denon $250 receiver. It's going to sound good. It's not going to sound like crap, but you get a lot of stuff in between. And then after you pass a certain point, then there's going to be a difference in sound quality that is incredibly noticeable. And features like better room correction, because even that $200 receiver comes with a little microphone and it says it does room correction, but what it really does is just try to adjust the volumes of the speakers. Whereas if you have something like a, a good brand amp with specialized room correction software, like both, um, I think both of the ones that I've used in the past few months come with their own microphone with their own calibration file because the mic was calibrated in the factory so that when you place the mic in the room and you run the calibration, you're not picking up frequencies because the mic is a little bit different because, you know, you make a run of 100, each one's going to be just a hair different. It's calibrated from the factory so that when you hear, when it hears all of your speakers, you get frequency response, volume control. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on in mapping that sound. So... I'm telling you this just to save you some money. <clears throat> if you don't have the room for a surround sound system, cool, get a decent sound bar or get two bookshelf speakers. Ask again if you have recommendations. Um, I, you know, I'm doing a video about audio, a couple of videos about audio in the next few months that hopefully will clarify this, but definitely reach out directly if there's anything that uh, you're interested in. And I do have that amp for sale, which I'm pretty sure does everything you need, uh, but it is a higher end used amp. That's kind of what I like to buy. I get the stuff that used to be two grand for less than a grand now, and it's new to me and it sounds fine. So it's really up to you. But yeah, I just wanted to cover all of your points and make sure to not skimp out on you. Also, because there aren't too many questions this week, so it's okay if I talk a little bit. But the short recap, you're not going to get full 5.1 out of two channel analog audio. Most receivers should have the ability to select inputs to match your HDMI don't know about soundbars, and I don't really think soundbars are the best bet, but hopefully 
that wasn't too rambly and it painted the full picture for you. Jake for Jones had a question about audio desync, and while I read every word of the question, I'm just kind of kind of skipped to my thoughts on it, just in interest of everybody's time. But basically, they have a GameCube with a GCHD Mark II connected to it, and if they connect both the analog audio outputs and the digital audio via the HDMI port and stuff, they'll notice that when the game starts, both of the audios are pretty much identical. But as a game continues to play over time the audio will desync from each other. So the digital audio will be a little bit slower than the analog audio. And it's noticeable while gaming, but it's certainly noticeable if you're switching back and forth and you could, or if you enable them both at the, the same time and you could hear kind of an echo. So that's kind of interesting. And it's something that I've heard of before, but it's not something I've been able to test myself. There's also a couple of different factors involved. Um, you know, are you going through a TV? Is the TV doing any processing? Is it, are you going through an amp? Do you have an amp delay on there or something? But I would kind of really be interested to hear if anybody else in the community is having a desync issue and they know exactly what it is that, or why it's happening and if there's even a fix. If it's a problem with the adapter itself, there's no way that you're going to be able to fix that. However, if it's something that is maybe a TV setting or a receiver setting, it's certainly a possibility. But has anybody else run into that issue? And does anybody else know of a solution? I think it was kind of interesting. And I'm wondering if that's something that I've just never noticed before because I don't really use... I don't think I would ever really switch back and forth between those outputs. I'd either be using HDMI or most of the time when I use my GameCube, it's for Game Boy Interface on a CRT. So I would use all analog output anyway. But... I'd be interested in other people's thoughts on that. Oliver Clare is looking to use a high-end gaming PC on their living room TV, but didn't want to worry about how loud the fans might be, and were really looking to keep the PC in one location and game in the other. And they heard my interview with Parsec from a few years ago and wanted to know my experience with that. And I don't have too much experience with this exact setup, but I can say that I've used Parsec since that interview pretty much, and it worked fine for me. The one thing I would suggest is if you're looking for a 4K60 solution, people have told me that the NVIDIA Shield works better than a Raspberry Pi 4 for streaming Parsec across your local network. Now, there are a few caveats to that. It has to be wired. You can't do this over wireless. And of course, it has to be within your house. While you can do things like Cloud Parsec that work incredibly well, it's not quite the same. But in that interview, they talked about how they were doing latency tests and the way that Parsec works, it's basically zero latency across a wired gigabit local ethernet setup. I wanted to make sure to accentuate that. It's not zero latency over the internet, but it's, uh, you know, it's, still actually pretty fast over the internet but locally that should be fine um you know there's of course a bunch of other things to consider you could always try doing a water cooling rig you could get some extravagant pc setup to try to cool it off but if you were really thinking about the ability to game in more than one place on the same pc i think this is a really good solution the only thing is i don't know of a remote device that could handle 4k 120 so if you were looking to do 4k 60 the NVIDIA Shield should be fine. I don't know how this would work with 4K 120. If that was the case, you, you might want to work on a rig that's easy to move around that you could just 
bring up with you whenever you want a game on that TV. Um, but I would definitely check check around and see if anybody else has any suggestions. But I'd also be interested to know if anybody listening has experience doing that with Parsec, because the few people I know that have been doing it say it's absolutely awesome. They can't feel any latency. Uh, and it's really impressive because you have this silent little box hooked up to your TV that is technically running a super powerful computer that you have in a different room. So good question. I think that should be fine. I would just do a little bit of double checking yourself to make sure, but should be a good experience. Jason Guffey was having some inconsistencies with their HDMI chain. They didn't really think anything of it. And then all of a sudden they walked into the room and it smelled of burning plastic. And they noticed that one of their devices melted and a bunch of other ones were having the LEDs flash when they weren't devices that ever flashed the LED. So they had some kind of power surge and they're not sure what to do. First of all, I'm really sorry to hear that. I know you get a pretty awesome setup, uh, and that's that's nuts. I, I hate to hear stories like that. I have never heard of any of these USB-powered cheap devices melting like that. Um, I didn't even think it was possible because of the low amperage over USB, but that's that's nuts. I'm sorry to hear that. I have absolutely heard of cheap power strips, and or especially the ones that, like, plug directly onto the wall and you plug a bunch of stuff into it. I had a friend just a couple months ago send me a picture. His had melted. So that's kind of scary. Um, but I've never heard it with any of these cheap little devices before. But that's kind of crazy. So there's not much you could do for that uh, to prevent it from happening. You could try to buy higher-end power strips. You could buy power conditioners and kind of hope for the best. Um, buying a cheap power strip that might end up melting at some point. That's why I never I never buy those like $8 ones unless they're for like one-off uses. Like, oh, I need to just hook this up real quick and then whenever I'm done, I unplug it from the wall. That's the only time I ever use the cheap, cheap stuff and it's it's rare. It's usually, you know, I spend at least 20 bucks on those, but usually a tiny bit more to make sure. So if I had been in the room and I saw all of the lights flash... I definitely would have yanked the power out of the wall and, you know, or, or multiple cables out of the wall if needed. Other than that, I don't, you know, you could try to do some, some power conditioning, but it's really more about preventing it when you're not there, because unless you're willing to spend a lot of money on power conditioners, then you're going to have to run into something like this at some point in your life. Usually it would be you smell a little bit of burning and one of your cheap converters dies and you're out 10 bucks and that's it. It's, you know, you don't normally run into melting stuff like that. So I would always recommend turning everything off unless you need it, especially if you have a ton of things connected, a lot of things that are rare and, you know, hard to replace like CRTs. And in fact, for my setup, which I'm finally starting to finish wiring, everything is off like off off when I'm not using it. And that helps prevent some things and not others. So here's a good example. A friend of mine has a pretty high-end power conditioning system built into his house. I think it's hooked up to the main circuit breaker and it gives him power reports and everything. And I guess the other day when the heat wave hit and everybody turned their ACs on at the same time, the power company spiked the power up to 200 volts and then it dropped down to 100 for a while, and then it came back to around 120. And because he has the very expensive, fancy power conditioner, his whole house was just at 120 the whole time. But if something like that happens and all of your power strips are turned off, it would absolutely cut the power off altogether so it would never see the spike and it would never see the dip. 
If you're using it while that happens, that's another story. But if you're not willing to spend a lot of money on power conditioning, which I'm not, I don't have that kind of money, just leaving it off will at least make sure that nothing happens to your equipment when it's the power is cut off in, in all the way. Um, that wouldn't, uh, you know, if lightning struck your house right by where your circuit breaker was, I don't think having that turned off would help. I think that power would probably arc right across the switch. But if the lightning struck down your street or, you know, on, on your road or something, it might be a different story. So I leave all of those turned off. I have almost everything running through power conditioning unless it's basic devices. So any of my monitors that I really like go through that APC power conditioner box. I leave that on all the time because everything else that's plugged into it's turned off. But now that you're telling me the story, I might climb down and, and leave that off all the time too, just in case, because that's kind of a freaky story to hear. Um, but basically, you know, get a little bit of power conditioning in there. Put UPSs on stuff like your router and, you know, your, your modem and your Wi-Fi stuff. And, you know, maybe even your PC or your server and then use power conditioners, the cheap ones, at least, you know, cheap meaning like 50, not you could spend thousands on power conditioner. So $50 isn't cheap, but it's cheap relative to. So I would just try to, to add all of that stuff just to make sure that this doesn't happen again. But it sucks. I'm really sorry to hear that happen to you. And uh, yeah, if anybody else has some horror stories of stuff melting, post in the comments because it's um, it'll provide a pretty good warning to to people that run into this stuff. Couple more from Oliver. They were looking to get another PlayStation Three and were wondering which model would be the best to go for. I'm not an expert in this, but I remember having a long conversation with Voltar about this, both offline and I think maybe even on the Retro Roundtable, and he suggested this model slim, and it just so happened to be the one that I had recently picked up. The model is CECH2501A, but it doesn't necessarily have to be this one model. I think most of these slims are really good. There could be one or two versions of it that might be not as reliable, but I think that model or ones that are close to it should be regarded as a little bit more reliable than the others. Um, I've heard that the super slims, the smaller ones with the plastic top that slides back and forth, I've heard that those are the least reliable. And of course, you know, you said you don't need PS2 support, but if you did, then you would want to go with the CECH A01 model. And that one, I have that one as well. Mine's been working totally fine all these years. I did have to have it fixed a couple of times, but it's still been consistent. But it's louder, and it'll probably die again, whereas that Slim will probably last me a while. So I think sticking with the Slims, if you want reliability, is probably good advice. Please correct me if anybody's hearing this and there's new information that I need to correct myself on this. And if possible, stay away from the uh, Super Slims if you're going to go buy one and you need it for reliability. That said, if you find one for super cheap somewhere, or if somebody gives you one, or if you already own it, I wouldn't throw it out or sell it, but I just wouldn't specifically go hunting one down. Next, they're trying to decide on a hard drive solution for their two fat PS2s and the super slim PS3. RetroNAS. RetroNAS, RetroNAS, RetroNAS. This is exactly why I keep beating this down people's throats. Um, you know, I made the joke in the video, I'm not getting paid by big retro NAS to promote this. I really truly think it's gonna be everybody's solution after people realize what it does. So for PS3, you can just keep your games there, stream them right to your PS3 over ethernet. 
For PS2, you could do the same thing, but if you run into a scenario in which the game is not performing as well over the network, not as common as people on Twitter made it out to be, you could either use RetroNAS or manually just copy that game to an internal hard drive. So for that, I would just get one of those SATA adapter or the network adapter with the SATA port, or if you can't find one, you could get an official one and get some conversion boards on there, but get some kind of flash storage, whether it's SSDs or flash media like um, USB or SD cards, just no moving parts, both because it's lighter and it's less noise and less heat and all that stuff. But whatever adapter you or whatever network adapter you get, just try to get some adapter on the inside to either convert it to SATA, convert it to SD, whatever else. And that would take care of it if you did need to copy something directly to the PS2. There's also a new update for RetroNAS that I think allows games to automatically be converted to PopStarter. I really got to try that one out. But um, so, yeah, I would strongly recommend keeping everything on a central location and then just, you know, letting RetroNAS do the work. Um, lastly, they know from their experience with PS1 collecting that even though the whole console's library is about one terabyte, their personal library backups doesn't even hit 300, so what do I think would be a good future-proofing capacity for the internal hard drives on the PS2 and 3? And uh, would I use a hard drive or SSD? So exactly what I just said, pick up SSDs for both of these, um, or just an SD card or whatever for the PlayStation 2, and definitely keep everything on a central location, because if you buy, you know, you could get, like, raid boxes um, that you could use and plug your RetroNAS into that, or you could build an Unraid server, or there's just so many things you could do where now you have all of this awesome storage all in one spot and everything just connects to it. So that's definitely my thoughts on it, but if for whatever reason you can't keep these things wired to a central server, let me know and I'll, I'll come up with another answer for you. Well, that's it for this week. As always, thanks to everybody who participates, and if you want to ask a question, post whatever you got, wherever it is that you support, in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post, and if you post it somewhere else, I'm most likely going to miss it. So, whatever you got, no problem, fire away, just ask in the latest Q&A post, and if for whatever reason I miss it, usually because it gets accidentally deleted in post or something like that, just message me directly if it's something important, but... Anyway, thanks again, and I'll see you all next week.